If you have your Bibles, if you would, open them to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. What does it mean to belong to the people of God? One might say that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it meant being a descendant of Abraham, someone who belonged to the covenant, someone who obeyed the law of God, someone who worshipped God. And in the New Covenant, the New Testament, that would be us, it's a result of something that someone has done mentally, that is assenting or believing the gospel, something that informs one's behavior. This is how I live because I'm a Christian. Something that we have in common with friends. And we go to church on Sunday and we worship God. I would argue that in both cases, we've got it exactly backwards. It is the exact opposite. And the most important aspect is missing in both, and that is God calls his people. God called Abram and then his descendants. It is God who called each of us and adopted us as his children into his family. And then our response is that we worship God. It doesn't come at the end of who we are. It is the beginning of who we are as the people of God. What does it mean to worship? It means to acknowledge the worth of someone or something. That's worthy ship, if you wish, worship. Recognizing and saying that something or someone is worthy of praise and celebrating the worth of someone or something far superior to oneself. So what is the big deal? Why is worship so important? And why do I say that it is the beginning of the definition after God calls us what it means to be the people of God? Well, there are two principles that we need to keep in mind. The first is, you become like what you worship. We see this throughout scripture. Oftentimes, however, it's in a negative, it's put in a negative context. Let me read to you a couple passages. The first is in Psalm 115. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see, they have ears, but cannot hear, noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. That is, those who trust in lifeless idols will in fact become somewhat lifeless themselves. And then in Psalm 135, Uh, A shorter version of this, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, has defined an idol as the thing that you get your identity from. This is a real real but a very subtle way of saying you are or you become like what you worship. And this makes sense if you think about it. If you are saying that something is worthy of your praise, your adoration, that is something that you celebrate, then wouldn't you want to become like that? If you're saying this thing is great, wouldn't you in fact like to be like the thing that you worship? If not, then why are you worshiping it? Why are you following it? Many people who call themselves Christians do not worship God because they have a wrong view of God. 
and many people who don't call themselves Christians also don't worship God because they have a wrong view of God. I've mentioned this before, but N.T. Wright, when he was a chaplain at Oxford, when he was teaching there, he said that oftentimes undergraduates would come in because he was a chaplain when they first arrived, and they say, well, you won't be seeing much of me uh, because I don't believe in God. And then Wright would say, well, which God is it that you don't believe in? Which puzzled them, and then they responded by talking about something like an old man with a beard sitting on a cloud, looking down, being cross with us, and making people go to heaven or to hell. And then Wright would say, well, I've got some great news for you. I don't believe in that God either. I tell you this because I think that oftentimes people fail to worship God as they should because they don't see God as they should. Worship is not the beginning of what it means to be a Christian for them. It's something optional, you know, on Sunday if I get a chance I'll go to church and be with God's people and worship him rather than saying this is the center of what it means to be a Christian. If you think badly of God, you forget his grace, his love and mercy, and you think only of his judgment, um, then I think it makes sense that you would not ascribe to him something of praise that you'd say, well, he's worthy of my admiration or my adoration or my worship. Worship then becomes more of an appeasement. I I don't want God to be mad at me, and so I'll go to church, but I, I don't want him to be mad. A critical component to worship is theology. That is, we need to know who God is, the nature and being of God. We are, after all, told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So this is something we really need to be engaged in. So the first principle is you become like the thing that you worship. The second thing is in worshiping God, you become more human. In the same way, if you worship an idol, you become more lifeless, if you wish, because you're worshiping something that has no life of its own. When you worship God as you should, you become more human. We are made in the image of the Creator. When we worship Him, we say that He is the Creator. He's the one who made us and sustains us, and we get our identity from Him. And in that sense, we become more human. Um, Again, to quote from N.T. Wright, perhaps one of the reasons why so much worship, in some churches at least, appears unattractive to so many people, is that we have forgotten or covered up the truth about the one we are worshiping. We don't really want to talk about God, and yet we, we gather to worship him. Simply put, I think what it is, we don't want to be like God because the view we have of God is quite negative. So how do we recover this? Well, think a moment. Worship is the praise and adoration of God the creator. God made us. God created the world. So when we gather together in different ways, in our singing, in our reading, in all that we do, it is, in a sense, reminding us of the creation story and that this is all going somewhere that is the new creation. We don't cover up the fact that we are sinners. We've had the prayer of confession. We have sung of God's amazing grace, and grace is only needed if, in fact, there is a real problem, and there is. Our worship shouldn't be sentimental. We, it should be, if you wish, very gritty. It should say, this is who we are and this is who God is and this is what God has done for us. We acknowledge that the creation has gone wrong. We have gone wrong. Corrupt and spoiled. 
There is a great fault that runs not simply down the middle of creation, but down the middle of each one of us. But God has rescued us. He is rescuing us. And he's doing that through his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we can praise God. We can worship him for his promises that have begun to be fulfilled in Jesus. And one day will be completely fulfilled when Jesus returns. So when we gather to worship, it is to tell the story of the mighty acts of God. This is what it means to worship God. And where do we get this story? We get it from Scripture, which is why in our worship we have at least two occasions when we have reading of Scripture, from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. This year, as a congregation, we have embarked on a project of reading through the Bible, the entire Bible, uh, from the beginning to the end. And we're doing it together. We're apart during the week, but we have a schedule that each of us follows. And we may not read at the same time of the day, but as we read, we know, well, oh, so-and-so is also reading. And we pray for one another as we read through Scripture. And in doing so, we learn more about God, which informs our worship. Yesterday, in our reading, we finished the book of Exodus, which contains in part the story of deliverance how that the Israelites, after four centuries of being slaves, were delivered. They were liberated by God, by his mighty power, the ten plagues. And then you have the Red Sea. Then we have them going to uh, Mount Sinai. On the way, they complain, and God gives them manna, gives them quails for meat and water. He provides for them. And then we have the horrible story of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is a weird place because you have God giving his law meeting with Moses and at the same time you have God's people acting in an abominable way. And then things in the reading might seem to bog down a bit. We're given various laws which seem a bit strange to us. Very, very detailed instructions about the tabernacle, about the priesthood, what they are to wear, how they are to be consecrated, the furniture, the utensils of the tabernacle. And at certain points, the reading may seem to get tedious. Today, in our reading, we begin in the book of Leviticus. And one commentator put it this way. The book of Leviticus, more than any other biblical book, has kept readers from getting to the biblical books that follow it. Um, It's just there and it seems to stop us in our tracks. He goes on to say, it reminded him of the old spiritual So high you can't get over it, so low you can't get under it, so wide you can't get around it. This is how people see the book of Leviticus. Today's reading, the first four chapters, and each one is dedicated to a particular offering. The burnt offering in chapter 1, the grain offering in chapter 2, the peace or fellowship offering in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, the sin offering, which is for purification. And then tomorrow, chapter 5 is the fifth of the five offerings, the guilt offering. Chapter 8 deals with the consecration of the priests. And then chapter 9, our tabernacle worship begins. And then the book gives us more instructions about health issues, about food matters, what is clean and unclean, and you're not supposed to have blood, uh, sexual relations, agricultural matters, how you plant, uh, various festivals, and more. And I think the question may come up as... People try to plow through. What are we supposed to learn from all of these things? 
what I'd like to do today is to give you some things to think about and hopefully encourage you to plow through as we read through Leviticus and then Numbers, uh, which is equally difficult, which comes after it. First of all, this is for Exodus and Leviticus. It is the Lord who determined how the Israelites were to worship him. And his instructions were not arbitrary. The creator, that is God, instructs those made in his image, human beings, how to worship him. And remember, we become like the thing that we worship. And God is the creator and we're made in his image. So when we worship as he instructs us, we become more like God, the one who made us. You will notice that God is quite specific in his instructions to the Israelites. We've seen this in Exodus. You'll see it more in Leviticus. But let's look at one example, and that is the matter of incense. The recipe for incense. This is found in Exodus 30. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum, resin, onucha, which is a spice unknown to us, and galbanum and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer, it is to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. Here the recipe is given, but there's also a warning. And I don't mean to make light of it, but let's imagine that you go and you smell the incense at the tabernacle and you're like, I like that. I'm going to try to make some like that at home. And no, this belongs to God. This is holy. This is for worship. Okay. But also, earlier in the chapter, in Exodus 30, you're not to make other kinds of incense for God's worship. Do not offer on this altar any other incense. So God has a very specific, specific recipe. You, and don't make this at home. Okay. And when you come to worship, no other incense. Here's the recipe. This is how you're supposed to do it. God is very specific. On Tuesday, but here in a few moments, we're going to read about two men who went against God's instructions. They were Aaron's two oldest sons. One of them should have succeeded him as high priest. So if you would, in Leviticus chapter 10, if you look at it, we'll read the first seven verses. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. In other words, I've given instructions. This is how you're supposed to worship me. Aaron remained silent. Verse 4. Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp and away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkempt. Do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. 
but your relatives, all the house of Israel, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting or you will die, because the Lord's anointing is on you. So they did as Moses said. God gives very specific instructions, and when they are violated, there are consequences. And it may, in fact, seem very harsh. You do, you mess up a little, you, you don't do the incense the way you're supposed to, and God kills you. But stop and think a minute. Consider if you have created something yourself, maybe a particular recipe, a, a food dish, the way, this is the way you make it, or a piece of music, or an app, a script. Someone finds it very interesting, and they're like, I'm going to try to do what you did. I'm going to replicate it. But then they change it. And then they present it as though it, would, in fact, was your work. And if it's a recipe, instead of putting in a cup of sugar, for example, they say, I'm going to put in a cup of sand. And then people are like, what is this? This is terrible. Oh, I got this recipe from so-and-so. No, you didn't. This is not how it's supposed to be done. In the same way, when people in the Old Testament worship God in a way that they were not supposed to, this is unacceptable. God has given very specific instructions on how they are to worship him. So, in reading through Leviticus, we should learn, if nothing else, that God is the one who gives instructions with regard to worship and with regard to life. He is very specific. God is the one who made us. He knows what is best for us. I've used the example before that if, if, if you have a car and you decide, yeah, I'm not going to use gas in my car anymore, I'm going to use water. And then it doesn't work. And the people will all see, it's a piece of junk. No, 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 you did not do things as you were supposed to. God has given very specific instructions. And, and you will see about blood. Well, we read this in Exodus. Blood on the right thumb and on the right ear, on the right big toe. Very, very detailed, very specific. God has a reason for doing this. The second thing I'd have you consider is that this is not a question of sacrificing or not sacrificing. When you read about all the various sacrifices, you may find yourself a little more than uncomfortable when we read all the details about blood and body parts and things like that. In reality, sacrifice is something that we cannot escape. It's not a question of should we sacrifice or not. The question is, to whom will we sacrifice? Now, in our society today, we don't sacrifice animals, but we do sacrifice other things, like our time, and our money, and things like that. And we all do, in fact, sacrifice. The question is, to whom do we sacrifice, and what kind of sacrifice do we give? What we find in the book of Leviticus, and elsewhere in Scripture, is that we, as human beings, the Israelites, owed their sacrifices to the God of creation. As I said earlier, in the first five chapters, we have the five main types of sacrifices. Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, and the guilt offering. And from what we learn, or from when we read this, we can, in fact, learn a number of things. This leads me to the third point, and that is that worship is costly. God's people are to be willing to sacrifice their most valuable animals, those without blemish. I don't know why it is, but whenever I read through these portions of scripture, 
Um, I, I did not grow up in this country. I grew up abroad, but in the middle and the Midwest, you know, kids would uh, raise animals and then take them to the county fair and win prizes. And you see these amazing animals. I mean, that they groom them, you know, they bathe them. I mean, they, they want them to just shine. And that, in essence, is the animal you're supposed to sacrifice to God. Now, part of us wants to say, well, why that? I mean, this is a beautiful animal. Why not something else? And the reality is, it costs to worship God. But there's something behind this. We shouldn't beat ourselves up or beat, or, you know, somehow think that God is being unjust. We learn something really important here. <coughs> Excuse me. We are not owners. We are stewards. What we have, put that in quotation marks, what we think we possess is really not ours. It belongs to God. And when we sacrifice to God, we are acknowledging, oh, this isn't mine. See, oftentimes when people talk about giving, it's like, this is going to hurt because this is mine and I'm going to give it. No, what we learn in Leviticus is, it's not yours. God has handed this to you. You're supposed to take care of it. And at a certain point, you take the best of it and you give it to him. We are not owners, we are stewards. We are stewards of what God has given us. God is the creator, God is the sustainer, God is the owner of all things. And when we give, when we sacrifice, as we find in Leviticus, we're saying, yes, this is God's. He's only committed it to me for me to take care of it. But it actually is his. It's an act of faith. A real act of faith. The fourth thing I would have you consider is the significance of sin. How big of a deal is sin after all? Really, is it a big deal? Read Leviticus and you will find out. The sacrifices regarding sin are costly and they involve death. They involve death. By the way, in the hymn we sang today, Stricken, Smitten, the third verse, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great. Uh, yeah, you, you think sin's not a big deal? Look at the cross. In the Old Testament, look at the book of Leviticus and look at the sacrifices. The fact that the sacrifice was to be blemish-free, it was to be the best of your flock, meant that the person who was going and confessing sin and giving a sin offering was not expecting to get it at a discount. It wasn't like, sorry about that, my bad. No, sin is something horrible and its cost is great. We have the wonderful story, wonderful in one sense, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, uh, the end of 2 Samuel, um, David sins against God. He does something he is not supposed to do. He holds a census. He counts the fighting men of Israel, and he is not supposed to do this. And so God brings a plague on Israel, and 70,000 people die. And David's like, what am I supposed to do? The prophet Gad goes and gives him instructions. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord commanded him through Gad. 
When Aranus looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aranus said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aranus said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are the threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arana gives this to the king. Arana also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king, that is David, replied to Arana, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. David had sinned. David was to offer a burnt offering, but he was not going to do it on the cheap. He wasn't going to say, oh, the Lord's blessed me. This man is going to give it to me. I don't have to pay anything for this offering. And David's like, no, I'm not doing that. Sin is costly, and a sacrifice in the book of Leviticus acknowledges the great cost of sin. Paul would write later in the book of Romans, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is costly. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men because all sin." Sin brings death. And the sacrificial system is one of death. I bring this lovely lamb, or this sheep, or this bull, this wonderful animal, and what are they going to do to it? They're going to kill it. That's what sin does. That's the cost of sin. And we forget that, But in a sacrificial system, I think it is brought home day after day that this is, in fact, these are the consequences of sin. I would point out, though, something, and consider this as you read through Leviticus, that there are limits. That is to say, when I go, if I've sinned against God, I bring one animal. I don't bring ten. I don't bring twenty. I don't bring all the animals I have. I bring one. I think that this is important, that the animal dies in my place. He doesn't take away my sin, but the death that should have come to me goes to that animal. But one, that there are limits. That I think there are times as human beings that we almost seem to be swallowed up by our guilt, our sense of guilt, that we have done something wrong. We think, I've got to give everything to make up for this. Trust me, if you gave everything, still wouldn't make up for it, okay? But oftentimes I think um, now as we are people of the New Covenant, we might think, well, I need to do endless acts of self-sacrifice to make up for the evil, the sins that I've done. No, you can do everything and it still won't make up for that. Our forgiveness comes through the blood of Christ. And here we see... As people go to the priest, they bring one animal. Now, in some cases, there are two in which one is let loose into the wilderness. But it's not the whole flock. It's not bring everything you have, all your animals, and kill them all. 
And then maybe God will forgive your sins. This isn't the way that it works. You may remember in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We have sinned against God. We owe a debt. It is not a debt that we can ever fully repay. But in the book of Leviticus, we see a system in which people say, I have sinned. This animal is going to die because of my sin. We could, in fact, spend an entire series just going through the book of Leviticus. It has so much to teach us. But there's one more thing um, that I would mention here at the end for us to consider. And that is what we read in the book of Leviticus points ahead to the coming of Jesus and to his sacrifice and his death. Do you remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus in John chapter 1? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? The Lamb of Read Leviticus. Read Leviticus, the sacrifices. Yeah, you'll see it there. But there's something else. On the day of Pentecost, as Peter is preaching, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. In other words, this was the guy. Jesus was the one that God had sent. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So we have the sacrificial lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and we have the death of this sacrificial lamb. And that death is not an accident. We shouldn't say, oh, if Judas hadn't betrayed him, he could have continued his ministry. If the chief priests had not arrested him, if they hadn't given him to Pilate, if Pilate hadn't given in, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. No. When you read Leviticus and you see the specific details of how it's supposed to be done, look ahead to Jesus and know that everything that happened to Jesus was a part of God's plan. There's nothing accidental here. This was God's purpose. And it happened exactly the way that it was supposed to. Do you think it's accidental that Jesus died by crucifixion? When you go back centuries to Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. Jesus hung on the cross. You think that's accidental? That God's purpose in bringing his son and his son's death as his sacrifice for sin. This is the plan of God. And as detailed as God is in Exodus and Leviticus about sacrifices, so he was in the death of his son. And he only had to die once. The one animal for your sacrifice, God's son dies once. In Hebrews 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The death of Christ is sufficient and it takes away our sins. There's much that we can learn from the book of Leviticus if by God's grace we will just persevere. As we read, let us pray that God will give us wisdom by his spirit. Let us give thanks to God for his law. Um, Psalm 147, and we find it elsewhere, but the psalmist says, you know, who other, what other people are there on earth that God has given his law to? In other words, God says, I'm the creator, you're the creature, this is how you're supposed to live. This is the recipe. Everybody else is winging it and doing it badly. God is telling us, 
And this is God's law, and we should be thankful and rejoice in it. And as you read this, may your thoughts be of the Lord Jesus, who is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. He's the one who dies in our place, who gives his life that we may have life. And by God's grace, may we as a congregation continue, be faithful in reading through Scripture, and come to learn more of God and his Son. Let's pray together. Father, there are portions of your word that we enjoy reading, if I could put it that way, that we find delightful, encouraging, comforting. And there are other portions that, frankly, we find tedious and we don't quite understand. I think that understanding completely what's being said is not a requirement. We are to study your word and in it we are to see the Lord Jesus. As we as a congregation read through your word, may your spirit give us understanding, even just a bit of understanding, and may he point us ahead to the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose death was not an accident, was not simply the result of a betrayal or political intrigue. This was your purpose. And as detailed as the sacrificial system was in the Old Testament, your son in bringing in the new covenant, the New Testament, is just as detailed. May we rejoice in that and give thanks for the gift of your son. That once, he died once for all, that we might have life. Sin has wreaked havoc in our lives, in our society, in the human race. Through him we have salvation. We thank you for your word and ask that you would give us a deeper and deeper appreciation of it as we read through it. Pray for Dan and Lonnie as they are away and Tess as well. Keep them safe and bring them back to us in a good time. Watch over us through the coming week. May we have a sense of your presence. May you guide us in all that we do. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.